right, guys, welcome to lunch. I'm glad the friendship has already started. And kudos to you to come to a lunch that's a really obscure title called Spiritual Friendship with somewhat of an obscure group called Ambrose Collective. And so we'll talk a little more about that. I'm Brandon Addison. I'm a pastor in the Presbytery of the West. Uh, pastor, also do some coaching with a group called Ten Man Ministries. Yes, that's based upon The Wizard of Oz, um, not the movie, but the book High Level. Anybody read the, the book The Wizard of Oz? Yes, it's a really bad book. That's why everybody watches the movie and doesn't read the book. But uh, the story of the Tin Man is really a Tin Woodsman. And uh, if you've heard it before, the Tin, tin Woodsman has a dream and a passion and a vision, and he wants to marry a munchkin girl. I don't know if that's politically correct, but that's what the book says. He has a vision for a life to marry a munchkin girl, and the Wicked Witch of the East is jealous. So she curses the axe. And all of a sudden, he goes out there in the woods. He's chopping, developing a house, wants to build it, and all of a sudden, he chops his arm off. And he goes to go to the tinsmith, and the tinsmith puts a tin arm on him. And then he chops his leg off, and he's got to go and put, uh, put, a, put a tin leg on him. And he discovers that he can work faster, harder, and stronger. He can become more of a machine. And so out there, the tinsmen had a vision, had a life, had a passion, but all of a sudden, he's now just a machine working and working. If you remember the movie, he says, watch out, oil me, oil me. And so what we do at Tin Man, we actually walk people back into their stories, back into their life, back into their passion, make them not become human machines, but make them become fully alive. Um, so it's a great privilege. But the reason I'm here is to talk about spiritual friendship. Um, that's something that's been a joy with these brothers who are much smarter than me, who will speak in a few minutes. Uh, if you were with Ed Stetzer, he said two things that really resonated with me, and it really coalesces with what we're doing. If you remember, he says, the two things you need in ministry, one are communities of support. And usually what people do is they, they put the Barna, like 38% of pastors are going to leave ministry and the only surveyed 400 pastors. I got a lot of anger over that statistic. It's abused. We need communities of support because we're fundamentally relational. Like Genesis 1. God made us. Apparently we're not doing the rhetorical Bible thing this morning. Okay. <laughs> is I'm feeling lonely. All right. In our own image. Uh, in his image. In neuroscience, um, the, even the left part of the brain. We know how to attach and relate before we can speak. So attempting to do ministry on our own is impossible. We need communities of support. And that's not comparison, networking, uh, talking about what we're doing. It's who are you becoming? How do you go below the waterline? The second thing you need is what they say is reservoirs of resilience. Great phrase. Resilience. Intellectual issues will not burn you out in ministry. It's, you don't need to learn how to preach the Psalms better. They're all emotional issues. It's what we call a failure of nerve and a failure of heart. Failure of nerve. How can I with, uh, withhold and create the stability in the midst of change? Failure of heart. How do I keep my life fully in it? Um, even research says you need a place who can hold you so you can be resilient in your organization. Spiritual friendship, that's what we call it. And what these brothers have been for me is a community of support and a reservoir of resilience. So what we're going to do, we're going to do a little bit of history, theology, practice in the nuts and bolts of what this looks like for us at Ambrose Collective. And I want this to hopefully reawaken your imagination in your own context. This is not necessarily simply a program, but do you have this in your life and what would it look like if you did? All right, before I turn it over, uh, it's been a lot of motioning and uh, talking. 
I want to give you 30 seconds of silence. What I find out in Presbytery is I work a lot with my mind and I don't know where I am in my body and my soul. So as much as we can, eat that last Lay's chip. And let's just do 30 seconds of silence before I turn, turn it over to Josh. Father, we are here, seated, and Holy Trinity, you are here, and we are here together. Give us the gift of being present in this space. Give us insight to see what you're up to in us and among us and through us. Amen. Hi, friends. I'm uh, Joshua Smith. I'm uh, a teaching elder in the Central South, and I have the joy of uh, talking about some of these issues of, of a theology of friendship and what that can mean and how that shapes our practice in ministry. And so um, I like uh, the, the line between um, theology and literature. I think the, the tradition of literature has done an amazing job of theology uh, that people don't really capture because they, they want to talk about theology proper. Um, but a lot of theology is actually an imaginative work, and it gives us uh, empathetic categories to be able to uh, communicate the truth about God with other people. It, it in fact, does something that I think uh, is communicated really well in a great little novel called Anne of Green Gables. I don't know if you've ever read this or maybe you saw the, the thing. I've got a, a teenage daughter that I read a lot of books with, and uh, this was one that we just really delighted in. Uh, Anne is uh, an orphan, and she has uh, been really badly treated for years and years, and then finds herself in uh, a new home with uh, a bewildered um, uh, brother and sister who are trying to figure out how to manage this wild child. And, and she gets described as a girl who knew and cared nothing about God's love since she had never had it translated to her through the medium of human love. And that, that is a profound statement that really goes all the way back to what Brandon was talking about with the Imago Dei, that, that we are created in God's image as reflections of God, which in, in one sense, the primary function of that, that image of God-ness that we have is to communicate God's love to other people, to be a, a translator or a mediator for that love. 1 Corinthians 13, we, we talk about love uh, with that passage all the time, and mostly um, we take it out of context, we use it in weddings. It's appropriate there, uh, but it's actually talking about how the church interacts with one another and what, what the practices are that damage love uh, within the context of the church. And at, at the end of that chapter, he says, For now we see a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. That verse is packed with 
opportunities for us to, to put it back into the context of what does it mean for the church to be the body of Christ, for our, our horizontal relationships to be not, not just reflections of, but actually mediators of God's love. What, what is it that's known in this passage? It's intimacy with God. And how is it known, or more accurately, how is it being prevented from being known? It's horizontal relationships. A failure of intimacy on a horizontal level will actually throttle our ability to have intimacy with God. It really comes down to childish failures of human friendship. If you go back a verse, he says, look, when I, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I spoke like a child. When I became a man, I put childish things away. And there is a childish way of interacting with one another horizontally that, that not only limits our, our capacity to be able to have relationships with one another, but ultimately uh, it, it limits our ability to know and be known by God. There's a, a, a story in Ovid's Metamorphoses, uh, one of the you know, oldest collections of mythology, uh, about this guy named Pygmalion. And Pygmalion, uh, uh, he, he looks around at the world and he sees the, the culture of prostitution. And so he decides, you know what, I'm going to become a misogynist. And people are like that, right? And so he just decides, I'm not going to have anything to do with any females. And he goes back home and he's like, but I really do kind of miss the, at least the idea or the form of female. And so he starts, he, he creates a sculpture of the ideal woman. And it's great because she doesn't talk back. She doesn't misbehave. She's just whatever he wants her to be. And he shapes her in all of these ways. And then uh, he prays to Aphrodite to make her come to life so that he only has to have a relationship with someone who is bent to his desires and his image. And that is a childish way of interacting with other human beings. But it's actually the way that we do because of the fall quite naturally interact with other people. And so our friendships become something a little bit like this. Uh, I'm, I, I will be a friend with someone if they conform to the image that I enjoy. Uh, and so our friendships become about affinities, about the things that we have in common with other people. Uh, and the moment they stop having those things in common with us, we break fellowship. Now, we're a part of a denomination that recognizes that there are things to break fellowship over and there are things not to break fellowship over. At least we're a part of a denomination like that on paper. But it actually happens every single day that we end up breaking fellowship with people in small ways, maybe even not forever, but in this moment, like, I don't really want to hang out with that person because they're not conforming to the image that I desire to see in them. And that prevents a whole lot of intimacy, not least of which because um, that, that communicates something to them about who God is. And we don't think about it that way. We don't think about the fact that the way I'm interacting with Mark right now in this moment is communicating something to him about the nature of God. But that's what humans are. Humans are pictures of who God is and how he works. And so there's, there's another model. If, if the childish model is the Pygmalion view of humans, that, that uh, my fellowship with you depends on your bending to my preferences, to my desires. Uh, the other one is my life for yours, which was articulated by Charles Williams, a really dear friend of J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. Uh, I don't know if you remember this um, little bit from... Uh, uh, 
an anecdote from their their friendship. But they, these guys were very close. They interacted on a deep level, and they, they, it came the point where Charles Williams uh, passed away before the other two guys. And uh, Lewis is reflecting on this loss, and one of the things that he says is, um, "I thought when Charles died, I would get more." of John. And you, you would think that way because now there's two pieces of the pie instead of three. And so now I've got 55, I've got 50% instead of 33%. But what he said was that there, there's actually a part of him that I lost and that I'll never get back again. Because part of what I loved about John was the way that he loved Charles and what Charles brought out in John. And they were actually able to participate in, in almost like a Trinitarian fellowship because of their horizontal relationships. And it unlocked some things for him theologically as well. That's happening to us all the time. And we see our paradigm with uh, Jesus in, in 1 John that, that you, have, you have Cain, who's the childish friend, right? He rose up against his brother. He saw something in his brother that he didn't like, and he rose up against him. But Jesus laid down his life for his brothers. And in John 13, he said, look, I've given you now uh, the, this example that you should do just as I have done to you. And on that same night, he said, I don't, I don't call you my servants anymore. I call you my friends. James 2 tells us that uh, scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. There is a deep connection. This is, this is what I want you to grab from this theological bit. There is a deep connection between your ability to interact with other humans and your ability to receive, to be known by, and to love God. And we, we disconnect those things and, and pastors think, look, I'm going to figure out how to love God and then all the rest will kind of you know work itself out. But God actually designed us to learn how to love God and be loved by God by being in fellowship with other people. And so I, I found this true in my life. The, the, the way that we actually believe is that we find people uh, who can know and be known and, and, and develop in practices in that with us. I, I've gained so much from being a part of uh, this collection of friends that we call Ambrose. It's it's, it's, it sounds a lot more formal than it really is. It's really just six friends. It, it's guys who, uh, you know, uh, a couple got together and said, hey, like, what if we had friendships like this? Um, and then invited a couple of other people to be a part of it and said, all right, what does that look like? How do we figure it out? How do we do it together? Really, there's one key habit that I want to dial into, um, which is uh, uh, it, it kind of comes from the, the, the Samaritan woman at the well. Like, I'm, so, I'm so struck by in light of the if the goal is to know and to be known, um, this woman walks away. And what is her testimony? What does she say? He told me everything I ever did. I think we need to, to engage in practices that, that allow other people the kind of access to our lives that they actually have permission to narrate our lives for us. That's very intimate and very uncomfortable. But I can tell you that these five guys could tell you my life story in humiliating detail in a way that I would recognize as the truth. And sometimes they re-narrate my life to me in ways that like I had forgotten. They remind me who I am. Sometimes they look at me and they say, hey, I see this and I think you don't see it anymore. 
I think you've lost it. And I think it comes from here. And they have permission to speak that to me. And the fact that they can say with, with the clarity and the detail and the conviction, the truth, they can confess. Literally, it's confession. They confess the truth about me and about God. Um, I can actually believe that God loves me because these guys love me. The extent to which they know me is more than enough uh, evidence to justify never hanging out with me again because I'm not like them in the ways that like makes them really cool. Their unique glory is different than mine. And if they were a part of a Pygmalion project with me, they would be trying to beat all of that out of me to make me more conform to the image that they have in their minds of what a good man would be. But instead, they see me, my unique glory, who I am, because I've confessed that to them, now they're confessing the truth to me. We become a priesthood of believers, and it really does come down to a, like a level of vulnerability that is um, terrifying and devastating. And like I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't trade it. Every single time... Uh, I, I hang out with these guys and I just tell them, I just tell them the truth. The truth can mean a lot of things. Usually when we talk about confession, I, the way I grew up, my story, confession means, um, you know, to tell everybody the bad thing that you did, right? Uh, because I was a naughty kid. And so that's how I calibrate the idea of confession. But confession is like, these are my needs. These are my, my, my feelings, my longings, my desires, my hopes. I am, I'm disclosing myself to you. We, it, we find it easy to disclose ourselves to God, but I think that's actually a, a bit of a cop-out. Um, I think what we're doing is we, we actually believe that we have relative anonymity when we, when we disclose things to God um, because he's not broadcasting it and we're not really hearing a whole lot back. But it actually takes a great deal more faith to confess to your brothers and sisters because th there are real consequences to that. You confess the wrong thing to the wrong person, your career could be over, right? And so we we hide. And that's our story. That's not just like the Genesis story. That is our story. That we wake up every single morning the same exact way. God says, here's the world and it is, it is here for you to delight in. It is communicating my pleasure to you. Come and eat and feast and enjoy the, the creation that I've given you and the relationships that I've given you. And we're like, I'm all in. This sounds amazing until we get an idea uh, about how we maybe could grasp something for ourselves instead of receiving what he offered us. And, and then we, we, we have to reckon with that. And then we go and hide. And so every day also has an invitation. Hey, where are you? And that's what confession is. And that is the, the, the habit that, is, that is, our friendships are built on, is confession. This is who I am. Will you be with me? That is a, that's a terrifying place to be. Um, but you actually can't be human unless you do that. You need other people to be human with you. That's kind of the theological, uh, a piece of the theological underpinning of uh, why we're, we're convinced that this is like a necessary practice. Uh, it's not just a, an add-on to your ministry. I actually think you can't, your ministry is limited by your ability to know and be known in horizontal relationships. So I'm passing it to Joey now, right? He's going to give us a little bit more of a historical background. My name's uh, Joey Sherrod. I'm a teaching elder at Signal Mountain Presbyterian Church, just outside of Chattanooga. Um, what Josh has just described, particularly the positive vision of 
spiritual friendship. For me, um, my own sort of entryway into that uh, was my sort of profound experience of loneliness uh, as a pastor and as a person. Um, and it was sort of out of that, out of some discontent, particularly about uh, three years ago, uh, right around the time of the General Assembly in uh, Cherry Creek, I guess it was, uh, that um, I connected with uh, a couple of other folks, um, one of who's in the room, another one who's uh, on vacation right now. And we, um, we kind of started, began to talk about um, just sort of what it, what it would look like um, to live into something different. Uh, as pastors. And as a pastor and somebody who likes history, I, for me, I like to look back so I can look forward. And uh, we kind of stumbled corporately around the, the person of Augustine as sort of a model. That's really where our name comes from. Um, because Ambrose, uh, Ambrose of Milan was Augustine's sort of mentor uh, figure. Augustine, uh, if you read his <laughs> confessions, his sort of spiritual autobiography, it uh, describes uh, a young man whose uh, whose heart was um, was sort of was restless, whose uh, who was looking and searching, who felt lonely, who would always sort of arrive at uh, some sort of uh, peak, thinking that he had sort of gotten to where he needed to go, and only to discover that it was a false peak and that there was another summit. Uh, and Ambrose had this fatherly role in Augustine's life. Uh, he's, he made space for him. He shepherded him. He, he showed him a different way forward. And uh, I felt like I needed that. Um, and I don't think I'm alone in this room. I think a lot of us feel like that, no matter how old it is that we are or what it is that we do. Uh, and Augustine, um, of course, came to know Jesus. Um, but if you, if you look at... Um, what happens in the Confessions? In Book Nine of the Confessions, Augustine like already knows like all the information that he that he's going to need. You know, he has come intellectually to believe that um, that God has come in human flesh. He realizes his deep need uh, for conversion, but yet he just can't get it over the finish line. Um, and it's actually an experience of uh, of friendship, sort of on multiple layers, that that brings him finally to convert to Christianity. On the one hand, he's with friends when he converts, even when he's in the garden alone. Um, there's actually a friend just, just right next to him when that happens. And it's only when he's reading about this community of friends that started with uh, Anthony the Great, who, was, who had a monastery in the desert. It's only when he sees that possibility that he's able to give his life over to Jesus. Um, and so Augustine, from that point on in his life, he lived his life uh, in a community of friends. Um, and he wrote a rule. And that rule kind of provided for us a little bit of the inspiration for how it is that we think about uh, our life together. And so you'll see what is like kind of like version 2.0 uh, is in front of you. Don't look at it now, but that's kind of what guides uh, our life right, right now together. Um, every rule of life um, has has a shape because it's meant to protect you from certain things and it's meant to guide you into certain things, right? And so, um, you know, we've heard about uh, the rule of St. Benedict, right? Uh, Justin Whitmill early wrote a book called The Common Rule, which has a particular vision for what it looks like to flourish. Even Calvin had this vision in Geneva of like a ruled community that patterned its life. If you look at Matthew Meyer Bolton's book, Life and God, it shows how he thought that Genevans could live together 
um, for God's glory in that place. Um, and so we come from a specific culture. We have specific challenges uh, as pastors. And Augustine's rule was a community of pastors. It was actually kind of like a training ground for pastors, that people would come to Hippo Regis uh, and they'd live with them. And then that was kind of a sending out place for a number of people. But it wasn't just pastors. It was also lay men and lay women who were part of that community together. Um, and so when we think about Augustine's rule and we think about the kind of things that inform our rule together, uh, there are like five things that we learned from Augustine that we've kind of taken on ourselves. First of all, um, it's friendship. Friendship is really at the heart of what it is that we are trying uh, to do together. If you think about Augustine's life, this was a man who, in spite of how introspective he seems to us, uh, he was never alone. He was always with other people. And I think he sensed that need that he had for others in his life. And out of that, what we have really, I think, a common conviction that we have arrived at, um, which is not new to us, which is, which is old, is that when it comes to the Christian life, when it comes to the pastoral life, if you're a pastor, friendship is not like an extra add-on luxury uh, in your life. Like, it is absolutely essential. And that's really the sort of the background that Joshua just gave to us. Like, if you want to experience the truths of the gospel, it will happen in friendship. If you want to have longevity in ministry, it's going to happen because you have friends who will walk with you. Um, one of my mentors would often say, a pastoral mentor, a man named Alan Poole, um, would say, you know, almost every significant movement of the Holy Spirit in my life was mediated through friendship. And that over the last two years, that's been my experience with these guys as well and the doors that they have opened up for my own life in Christ and growth with them. So friendship, essential. Second, uh, praying the Psalms. Um, the Psalms are um, just an essential of biblical spirituality. The church has prayed the Psalms. Israel prayed the Psalms. Um, the Reformed tradition in particular treasures the Psalter. Uh, and so when we think about the way that Augustine's communities were structured, it was the regular praying of the Psalms. So we tried to incorporate that ourselves. We each have different stations and stages of life. Uh, you know, some of us are about to be empty nesters. Uh, others of us uh, have just had, you know, have like a, a one and a half year old uh, in our house. And so the same pattern doesn't work for all of us, um, but the Psalms need to work for all of us. And so that guides, that guided Augustine, it guides us as well. Um, a common life. A lot of this has to do with what uh, Joshua was saying about confession. Um, you know, one of the things that Augustine was really attentive to within his community is, uh, and take this, take this in the right spirit, but he was very attentive to like the dangers of privacy um, and how secrets, um, how secrets can really kill people, um, not when they're held uh, and there's no light that can come in. And so we prioritize, just like Joshua said, bringing those things out into the light. I've, you know, and recently in a group said, listen, if I don't, if I don't share this with you guys, this is going to kill me. So I need to get this out. And then to hear their, their love, but also their counsel about things from my life has been a huge gift for me. Uh, and then really at the center of this, um, uh, the center of Augustine's own spirituality, but the center of what we want uh, is love. Uh, you know, Augustine was a man of 
um, you know, amazing uh, control over, you know, Platonic philosophy and, you know, biblical knowledge and Roman history and all those things. But he would always simplify in a way that I found really helpful. And so he would simplify for us in the same way that Jesus did. What's at the center of everything? Love of God and love of neighbor. And so that's a part of what it is that we want to see in our relationships with each other, what it is that we're calling each other to uh, is love of God and love of neighbor. And so that's at the very center of what it is that we hope to see formed in us by living together in this way. Um, and that we would love to invite each of you as you think about what it looks like to take this. Is how do we how do we build whatever it is that you need in your context for your place around that as well? Love of God and love of neighbor. And so Andy and Mark are going to talk about um, sort of what it looks like to implement this practically. So on a, on a practical level, I think that friendship and community is kind of like happiness. If you are pursuing that and you think that's the thing you're going to come up with, um, you never really get it because I think those are best like byproducts out of other things. And so um, I think what we get here is a kind of friendship and a kind of community, but it comes by practicing other things. And so the way I think about this and the way that we've worked this out over the past couple of years is it's something you cultivate. And there's really three parts to it. Uh, if you think about like like a container, um, for example, like a water bottle for a moment, um, it's shaped to hold a certain thing. And so it, at home, if you go to your counter, you might have like a, a favorite glass or a favorite cup you drink out of to hold, you know, water or a beverage. If you're going to travel um, to an event like this, you might have like a, a reusable water bottle like Richard's got there that he can fill up anywhere. Or this is a disposable one. But, but a container is made to hold a certain thing and it fits that. So for us, the container... Um, for friendship was really just a hard commit to showing up for each other weekly on a Thursday morning or we're across multiple time zones. Um, we're not present with each other. We did this during the pandemic, so we couldn't see each other face to face. Um, uh, and so we would just meet up for about an hour, hour and a half every Thursday morning um, on Zoom and, uh, and just the commitment to just show up and be there for each other um, actually created a space that like friendship could develop um, without showing up nothing's really going to happen. And a lot of people think that like, if I, if I show up the first time, if I really like this person, we're going to become friends. That's not how it worked with us. I mean, it was a, a long process of showing up for each other and then learning each other to the point that like, you're like, I really love this person. Like I really, you know, I, the actions of showing up and listening end up create the feelings of real affection and care for one another. So the container is important. And for us, it was a weekly Zoom on a Thursday morning. Um, and then it became a face to face once a year. Um, a couple of us got together uh, in March of 2020. It was like literally the last thing we did. We were at a restaurant and we're watching the NBA game where they killed it at halftime. Remember this? And they sent everybody home. And we're like, huh, this might be a thing for um, for us in our churches. Um, so that, that was a face-to-face in 2020. Um, and then uh, we got together once again in the spring of 2021, once again in the spring of 2022, just to have like three days just to see each other, to meet together, to laugh, to talk, to pray, to share a lot of stuff Joey shed, said. Um, and then uh, the last, I think the last part of the container is um, a willingness to just um, have a certain content to it. So this is a disposable water bottle. It's got water in it. The content for us was the substance of the rule that Joey laid out. It's what's written on your page. But a couple of things you need to know about it. Um, we didn't do this to be better pastors. We did this because we were sort of lonely people that needed friends and wanted to learn how to be friends for each other. 
this is where it applies to you, whether you're a, a, a ruling elder, a teaching elder, a staff member at a church, um, a person who came here to just be part of General Assembly or, or even be present or volunteer. Um, there's a certain kind of content to friendship. And so the kind that we basically laid into was um, what Brandon said at the beginning. How do we start to talk about our lives in such a way that we get past the, like, how's things going with your work or your kids or your home or things like that? And more to, like, what's actually happening in you, in your heart? Like, what's, what's, what are you experiencing? What are you feeling? What are you thinking? What's God doing there? And so um, a lot of our early conversations were around learning just the language of, like, what's happening in my heart. And so we used a little book by Chip Dodd um, called The Voice of the Heart to, to know how to talk about that a little better. And then we started talking in twos or threes sometimes so that we had more space. So like if Joshua and I were on the phone, he got 20 minutes to tell me really what's going on in his heart and life rather than like five minutes um, if he needed it. Or if you want to take the whole hour, I want to take the whole hour we could. So we had some early talks that way. Um, and then we started to pay attention to just things we wanted to learn together. And so we created some space in the fall where we would uh, read a book together on something that was relevant to our work as as pastors, like the, the preaching, teaching, the kind of work we did there, because that was our that was our work. And in the spring, we wanted to read something just about our world, the the kind of place we live in, like in the 21st century in the United States, something that people around us, like friends who weren't Christians at all, cared about and were interested in that we could even learn from and learn how to speak their language and do that a little better. So the content that kind of went in that container of Thursday morning Zooms was, again, learning to talk about our hearts, learning to talk about what we're learning from from the Lord and the Psalms, learning to talk about the kind of things that were coming into our lives and the rest of that. And then out of that came the community. Out of that came the friendship. And I think for a lot of people I know, I mean, you've read pieces probably too about how, you know, younger middle-aged guides are pretty lonely in our world. Um, I used to live in Southwest Florida and I met a ton of older people that were lonely in the world too. So it's not, it's not limited to just an age group or a gender. Um, it really is, I think in our world, we've learned to be on our own a whole lot and be alone a whole lot. And so to simply gather a couple people together and to commit to a space and a time and to learn to really sort of like go below the waterline of your life and talk about what's happening in your heart or your life in that container of the Lord and under his grace and his providence brings about a result, which is a real kind of community and a real kind of friendship. So those are sort of the practical parts. The container was that Thursday morning um, Zoom. The content was talking about our hearts, um, our feelings, what was happening in our life, um, being able to listen and to and to give feedback, to to respect, and to pray for. Uh, and then out of that grew a kind of community that was a rich and deep one where, as you said, you felt known and could know others and love um, and be loved. Um, and hospitality is a big part of that. So Mark's going to tell us a little bit about kind of what it looks like to have space for that. I'm going to go a little bit different direction than hospitality. I could talk to you guys about hospitality for a very long time. So um, no one has time for that. Um, What we have done, um, Ecclesiastes 5 says, guard your steps when you go to the house of the Lord. If you've been in ministry for any length of time, you've experienced some kind of pain, some kind of hurt. If you've lived life and loved people, you've experienced hurt, you've experienced shame. Um, and we all have that in our stories. And what we have done on some of these retreats is taken a big notebook like this or a notepad like this and drawn these uh, pictures of stories of shame. And we've told them to one another 
and not in a uh, look at me, look how much I've been hurt, but look at me to know how broken I am, to know how much I need Jesus. And what has happened out of that is that we've been able to be seen from by one another, to see both our hearts, where we love things, where that love has gotten twisted and where we've gotten hurt in that as well, where we put our hopes and where those have fallen short. And many of the times that we that when I've told stories and some of the pain and hurt and shame that I've experienced, um, some of these brothers have been with me and seen it from an outside, but now they're able to see it from an inside point of view and to be able to help me relocate that shame and to be able to see God's grace and his mercy and his love in being able to do that. We have to build that in to our lives in order to be seen, in order to be known. One of the places that this really hit um, firmly for me was this last January. Um, Colorado is not a dark place, uh, except in January. We had a few, like those are all the days of shade and cloud that we have. Otherwise it's sunny and rainbows and mountains and it's beautiful. Um, but for a few weeks out of the year, we have these, these dark days. And I was experiencing some dark days in my life as well. And I was listening to a book, um, David Brooks' uh, Second Mountain, and he talks about the, the depression that, that men in particular have as they go through their life and the rising suicide rates. And his mention of that, for whatever reason, took hold in my own mind, and I began to have some images of suicidal thoughts. Not that I wanted to do that, but that's what came to mind. So first thing I did was I went to my wife and I told her, she encouraged me to talk to my counselor. I talked to her. And then that same week I was able to come to these guys because we were on a regular basis and I was able to share with them what was going on, what I was feeling. And I was able to be real and to be known by them in a way that they could help me restory God's grace and mercy in my life. One of the things that we are able to do when we share our stories of shame is to have that shame be, be to be freed from that shame. And so we see that worked out in this tangible grace of having these guys in our lives, knowing us, knowing that we're not going to be judged, that we're not going to be brought up on like ecclesial like issues or anything like that but that we are going to be known and loved by these guys who know our stories like way too well, right? Like um, we would tell, I would tell guys, I'm going on a retreat. Oh yeah, what are you going to do? We're going to share, share stories of shame. And why, why do you want to do that? That does not sound restful or retreating, but you actually come back very refreshed. You come back freed. And this is one of the things that we are able to, to do with and for one another. Um, it provides that space. It provides that container. And it provides that love and grace that uh, we have in Jesus Christ. So who's up next? Brian, you? Are you going to wrap up? Yeah, I can. Okay. You go. Before I do, do like practical, do you want to? So, so I think here's the thing. I mean, all of us, all of us, uh, you know, you got like a finite amount of uh, ability to, to know people. And so this isn't anything that we're putting in front of you as like, hey, here's this special group, like join us and become one of us. It's not that kind of thing. It's more just a I think we sort of stumbled onto and intentionally prayed about some things here that are actually accessible to like 
any believer that just wants to be friends with the, with the other. When I moved to Southeast Tennessee into our presbytery, found a lot of pastors that didn't know each other and were pretty lonely. And we tried a couple of different things, trying to figure out who wanted to be connected or um, engaged. Um, but I feel like what I learned from these guys was how to actually do that. And so the thing we wanted to put in front of you on the back of that little page is um, our names and our info, but then like a couple of next steps. So just imagine for a moment that you're someone that would say like, gosh, I would love to have a couple of friends around me who knew me at a heart level, who knew my story in such a way that they could tell it back to me and were like a really safe person for me to talk to, to gain counsel from, to love well and to travel well in the course of of ministry or whatever's in front of me. I think this is kind of a way to do it. So, I mean, the form we put in front of you, I think is good and fruitful, but it'd be up for you to discern what's best or how you might want to modify that. And so I think what we could tell you would be that I'd recommend um, approaching a couple people and kind of sharing with them something like this and saying, would you be willing to do this with me? Um, and so what we want to think about, this is kind of the number four one down there is, why don't you try to do this? Why don't you try to gather a couple friends, invite two or three, and say, hey, what would it look like if we just showed up for each other on a more regular basis? We, we made some space. We set aside a container where we're going to meet together. And then we started to just do things regularly together in terms of conversation that created those openings for us to really know one another and really share in each other's lives. To that end, uh, any one of us would be willing to help you do that. Um, can't do it for you, but what we could say is like be an encourager or be a friend to you or be an advisor to you in that process. And so you could start with a couple other friends. You could begin small. You can make it a priority though and see who emerges and see who, who feels the same invitation in their heart, who has that same hunger for a kind of friendship or to be known um, and, to, and to be together in a, in a real way. And so for us, again, it was an hour a week to talk at a heart level a season to learn, to intentionally learn, because that way we're just all staring at each other. We were learning from outside of ourselves as well. Um, and then a retreat together and just go a little deeper um, in friendship below the waterline. That's not rocket science. That's something that's accessible to every single one of us and any of us could begin tomorrow. And so um, Brandon is really good at this and has kind of been our coach um, in sort of helping us think through some of the particulars of this. But any one of us would do that for for you or anyone else that wanted to talk further. So that's sort of the simple, practical next step side of it. Um, that's a way that you can maybe take that, replicate that in your own context with a couple people and just ask the Lord who might share in that. But again, um, I think the deep hunger is there. I think there's tons of people around you, people who you probably know, who are probably dying for a friend who would really know them and share with them in their life, that you can mutually um, love the Lord together confess your sins to each other, um, be healed, even as the way that we talk about um, in the scriptures and in ministry. And we just want to recommend it to you. Uh, one more thing, we'll open it up for, for questions too. Um, we do offer seasonal gatherings. That's kind of beyond uh, just the six of us. Usually it's culture and Old Testament. So if you look at it on the back end of that rule, we're going to do one uh, based on Tim Keller and culture starting July 7th. If you're interested in that, kind of warming your hands by the fire, uh, talking about American culture and how to engage that, you can contact us as well. But we always kind of extend out a discussion corporately. Um, I just love to listen to you guys, honestly. And I'm thinking about, um, I'll give you the questions and I don't want to do too much, but being a typical Enneagram 3, that's a bingo thing we always talk about. So you got to throw Enneagram in here. Um, typically known by performance, you can get a lot of things done. 
and terrified of being known. And knowing that I have brothers who aren't impressed with me, but want to be with me, has been the greatest gift of my life. And it actually helps me be a human being as a pastor and not throw my 90 mile an hour fastball. So that's a great, that's out of gratitude for you and the predictive possibility of what this can be. Also, I want you to show, uh, show you something about the rule. The rule has nothing to do about uh, false spirituality. We can hide behind spirituality day in and day right. I mean, day in and day out. Uh, false piety. What our spirituality does, and the reason we, we talk about our emotions, is that leads us to honesty. Calvin talks about this, by the way. The two things you need to know, knowledge of God and knowledge of self. And typically what pastors do is we hide behind our knowledge of God and don't know where to bring ourselves. And so Psalms and the emotions make us go, no, I'm bringing myself to the real God who can meet me in my need. All right. Uh, extra sermon over. Uh, let's open it up for questions. We talked at you for what? A long time. So what comes about? Um, yep. You guys come up here too. So. Yeah, I guess. We got like, what, 15, 20 minutes? Yeah. So, um, if I if I heard and understood right, this is kind of stretched out over multiple cities and various places. So, context, you know, I I have guys from seminary that we still keep in contact, know each other's mess, sorrows, joys, love each other, say we love each other, get together every so often. It sounds very similar. Um, and in a lot of ways, that's gone a long way for alleviating my own pastoral loneliness. And... Uh, I've noticed uh, in my own self, and I'm curious if this is similar or different for you and how you deal with that, that uh, it's been really hard to find a friend in my area. And uh, I've been really struck and kind of nagged by the proverb about, like, better is a neighbor nearby than a brother far away. And what that actually uh, means, uh, because while I feel supported, have someone I can call on a Friday night, because I got little kids, so I'm not going out. <laughs> uh, on a Friday night, there's really no one that I, that I spend time with other than my wife, who's lovely, and I adore her. Sure. And we have some, some, male, some male friends. That's been really uh, difficult in, a, in my tiny little 200-person town, tiny little church. Um, I don't know if that's been a similar experience for, for, for you all or how you deal with that, the, the place of proximity in developing friendships and the relative like luxury that it is in our modern world that we can just kind of snip out the proximity piece. That's a whole, I, there's a question in there somewhere, uh, but uh, I'll just... Well, it's an easy one to answer, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> he wants to give feedback on that. I think, uh, I mean... We would all, we're all like deeply incarnational. Uh, and so, you know, yes, the priority is definitely on um, like embodied relationships in close proximity. Um, and I think whenever we use technology, we're, we're basically, it, you're either enhancing and scaling something that's already there, um, or you're creating a scaffolding for something that doesn't exist. And I think a lot of people do that. And so they like approximate relationships digitally um, and it doesn't work. Um, what we found is that like our Zoom stuff enhances um, embodied relationships that were existing. And that when we get together and we spend the, that time together, like that's really the substance and the, the other is, is helping us scale that. Um, but then also what we're doing as Ambrose, at least for me, I think this is true for all of us, but I've gained um, some competencies and some courage relationally from these yeah. guys that then has transferred 
to um, local relationships. So, for example, not to call you out, but like Will here uh, is uh, one of my best friends. Uh, and a lot of our friendship has been enhanced by what's happened here. That I, things that I've learned about myself, things that I've learned about like the nature of friendship, that I'm able to carry to places where I, where I wasn't able to do that before. And it has actually, um, it's taught me how to be a better friend locally. So I, I hope that that would be yeah. an encouragement that you yeah, could. Yeah, gotten better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've gotten way better at it. Do you want to grade it real quick? You know, like yeah. thermometer. He pays for my retreat. This is for him. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> I would say there's a phrase we use too. Um, we practice these things with people who are, who are less important to us. Mm-hmm. So we can be more present with the people who are most important to us. And these guys are really important to me, by the way. But like my wife, my kids, my neighbors. So it's not a trade-off. But it actually makes me more present in that place. So, but we didn't think about this geographically. We're like, hey, it's kind of naturally coalesced together. So I would say if you've got something like that amongst the, see, like I didn't, I didn't have a community of friends that came out of seminary like that. So if you have that, that's a gift. Lean into that and that can become deeper. But then there's another kind of friendship that's different. That's like the friendship you have with your spouse or the friendship you have with your coworkers or the friendship you have with people that you can just go to their house and hang out at. So it may be that locally for you, it's like, okay, Lord, who, who could be the three to five people that I just feel comfortable hanging out at their house um, or going out uh, you know, for a drink or going for a walk or something like that. That may not be like at this like pretty deep heart level, if that's something you already have but that over time might become that for them. And who knows what could happen with that. So I feel that need. If I can follow up on that, that's mainly where I'm wrestling is, I don't know if you all, I have a really hard time with that. I mean, my work and everything's all overlapped in a very small bubble. Yeah, Um, yeah. And so we don't have work relationships. We're vocational pastors outside of church. We try to maybe get involved with like soccer and other things. Trying to find a place where it feels normal and natural. yeah. Together on maybe not the deepest. Do you have a hobby you love? Substantive level. Is there a hobby that you have or love or you may oh, not have time for because you've got little kids? But <laughs> I mean, do you do you eat meals? Do you eat meals? I mean, one of the things. So I'm starting a church. We're scratch planning. We don't have a mother church. We have a partner church, and we just invite people over. And so we're very slowly, we're in Denver, it's like hyper individualized. And so, but it has taken us years to have regular invites of people coming over. And we, uh, we as a family just have said, we're just going to do this and we're going to invest relationally um, in our neighborhoods and stuff. And so, but it has taken a very long time. And every, I, I would say every other place in the U.S. is just a little less individualistic than, than Denver. We're all very individualistic at this point. So, but it takes time and it takes the vulnerability um, of on us to actually begin those friendships and to begin get into those prox, more proximate um, spots. So I hope they gave you, so. gave you something. Yeah. Let's go to somebody else. May have yeah. a different question. All right, uh, Platt. Bald, good bald head, man. No, we're going with bald head. Yeah, I'm with you, man. I got, you got it. Yeah. Can you, can you guys just talk about the nuts and bolts of your one-hour Zoom call? Like, you got a lot going on in your rule. Like, you just, like, take turns. Like, hey, you get 10 minutes to invest. So, yeah, so we get on. We uh, have a shared Zoom link that we all get on. We're on there within about five minutes of the start. And um, we read through the rule. Um, we check in with our emotions. That's a sheet um, that has their neutral emotions, but they can go negative or they can go positive. 
Um, we check in with that and then we say, and then we read the rule and then we say, um, who needs time? Who and needs that, some space? Yeah. And that's really important because yeah. it's the person who's like the neediest, yeah. the angriest, the person who's willing to take up space. The people need to take up more space, um, and that, that's that's what happens. So it's yeah. not round robin. It's not how are you doing, Bill? How are you? One well, fun. No, we're not doing that. It's yeah. like whoever is the hungriest gets space, yeah. and we attune to that. Yeah. Airing yeah. of grievances. Yeah, it's Festivus. It's just <laughs> <laughs> that's what the retreats for. Yeah. <laughs> is that helpful? Can answer yes, question. Blue in the back. Yeah, I think this is really encouraging. One of the reasons it's encouraging is uh, I've recently started serving as the chaplain for the region of our presbytery. And so one of the things we're trying to do is help create these kind of communities among people. Of so it's just as helpful towards that end. My question is, from a longevity commitment standpoint, what have you done and what have you found that's helpful? Because I know that a lot of times that when you have a richer commitment, you're able to, to do these things better. So y'all taking it one year at a time, Five years, what, how have y'all thought about that commitment and how do you think that commitment has shaped your conversation? Yeah, I, would, I, I think what what's different about this and what's happened, we don't have like a commitment or a one-up or a licensing or anything like that, but I'm committed to these guys. Like it's what happened. Like they care about me, I care about them. And so it's not about content, completing content, which is a lot of the issues with pastoral groups. It becomes about content. And so you read Canoeing the Mountains and nothing changes and you're lonely. So first, like you go practice the emotions and learn to be vulnerable and you see where the group goes. Yeah. So, so I, we don't have a longevity okay. thing. Yeah, but we're doing this and then we'll see where it goes. Yeah. And, and obviously you can't like, they talked about, I think it was year two before we started going, hey, let's do a deep dive into our stories. We didn't do that for the first year. We were aligning, getting to know one another, enjoying one another's company. And with that yeah, way, I've always so. maintained there's a bit, there's a bit of mystery to friendship too. I mean, you can, you can try to befriend someone, but like if, <laughs> They don't befriend you back. It's just, it's a lot of those one way efforts and relationships, right? And so I think a little bit of it is like you kind of create the, this is kind of why I said that the container and the content and then just see where it goes. It could be that for somebody, that's great. It's a great, it's a great year or two and moved on um, or, or schedule change and have time for that or I couldn't, that's okay. You know, so it's not, it's not with an eye toward like, oh, this is then how this is going to, you know, work forever. But I would say what Brandon said is true is that out of that, these people become really important. And even though it may not maybe look the same like a couple years from now, who knows? But they'll still be important and there will still be like a depth and, and relationship there. It also, like it stops being a consumer product after after time, you know, like you, at, at first it's does this work for me, but eventually like, I mean, we we, we came to a point uh, a year ago where one of us said, hey, like, it, man, I, I, this is such a priority to me and I can't make it at this time. Can we shift it a little bit? And we were just like, of course we can. Like, this is, it. it's my life for yours. It's just a different posture. I had one more question. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> got passed over a couple of times. Got sad. Um, can you just <laughs> thank say you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Brandon, you kind of referenced, like, kind of waiting time to, like, kind of go deep into each other's stories. But, like, can you just say more kind of on the... Like on the front end of this, kind of what's like the average level of like how well you knew each other and kind of how you navigated like kind of having context for like what each of you were sharing, but also like kind of actually getting to it. 
<laughs> somebody jump in that? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's funny. Like, I mean, I, even as we're thinking about this, like the the first time all six of us were physically present in the same place was like five weeks ago. Like, uh, but we showed yeah, up for each can. other, um, and that person who was who had not been present is not here right now. Um, uh, but he has a one and a half year old kid, so he's got like an out. But yeah, I think like. Again, I think this gets back to some of your question is that we just continually showed up for each other. And I mean, this was like, you know, I think Andy's completely right. Friendship is a mystery, but if there are two ingredients, it's like providence and perseverance, right? You know, so providence in that, like we, like, I mean, despite the fact that we're all like white dudes are within eight years of each other, like we're not very <laughs> similar in a lot of ways. What, Revelation so, 7, not uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we're, we're actually pretty different. But I, I mean, we just kind of all sort of like, because I think that the Lord doesn't want us to be lonely. Like he wants us to have friends. It's not his desire that we be alone. And so I think we like gravitated towards one another for that. And then like consistently, we just made it a priority that we were just going to be there for that that hour a week. And then beyond, beyond that, like once a year, twice a year soon. Um, so, so yeah. Yeah, so it started with, uh, I mean, Literally, I mean, Joey Tanner, who's not here, and Brandon sort of were getting together and just basically said, hey, can I be a part of that too? Um, and so and, uh, Joey and I worked together. These guys used to know each other a long time ago and then got reconnected. I didn't meet Brandon until like a couple months before we did this the first time. Um, Josh and I, we had coffee at GA one time because I wanted to pick his brain about a worship question. Um, Mark and I used to serve near each other in Tennessee and Georgia and had been in a discipleship group together. Um, and so there were like little threads, but there was no, by no means like deeper existing relationships, except for maybe among two or three of us. And so it's just a little bit, again, that's kind of why I said like, you know, start with a couple people that you know and say, Hey, is there, if I talk about this and it just kind of falls in deaf ears, well, maybe I'll go talk about this with somebody else. And then like those times of learning gave us a chance to throw it open to whoever else might be interested. And that's where, uh, you know, you find out real quick who, who, um, who feels the same things that you feel and has the same hunger that you have. And, uh, and then over time that becomes like a real, a real, a real friendship. So you do learn pretty, pretty quickly how to discern the relative level of trustworthiness of a person. And so like the kinds of questions that I can ask you in a, a casual conversation, like whether or not you're volleying back, are you, if I give you some of my heart, do you know how to hold that? And do you know how to reciprocate? And if so, then we can go a little bit deeper. And if you don't, then that's great. And this was awesome when we, we sort of move on. And so you 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 find a, a facility for that, I think. Uh, there's like four phases to group development. I forget the author, uh, but it's... Joseph uh, Myers. Is it Joseph Myers? There we go. So uh, what? Uh, forming, norming, storming, which is like the conflict piece. And the last one's transforming. And typically we stay away from the storming. Um, and just knowing what phase you're into. And actually storming defense relationship. Like this guy as an Indian great mate has no problem confronting me in a, in a great way. And I'm grateful for him because of that. It makes me a better person. Um, so that makes me think about what stage you're in. It takes time to form. Other questions? Yep. I was gonna say, uh, a softball question, but how much do you see these types of relationships as a key ingredient to longevity and stick to it in this softball but <laughs> I feel like it's vital because it gives me 
people some ways outside my context so I can talk to you about some of those long-term kind of things. Um, you know, with the exception is Joey. The, the odd thing is we're both pastors on the same staff together. So we actually know like way more about each other than probably is normal um, in that kind of situation. And yet still that's like a safe space to talk about some of the really hard things locally or the kind of things that might tempt you to basically be like, I don't think I want to do this a whole lot longer in some ways. Um, so I think it's, I think it's vital. I think if you, if you don't, I think if you don't find something like this somewhere, you end up being people who probably um, long-term in ministry might do more harm than good or um, end up sort of checking out before you have left your ministry. I think we all probably know pastors like that who we admire in some ways, but we're like, I think you sort of like lost the fire a long time ago um, and are just kind of marking time. And um, I don't want that to happen for me. I, and yeah, so. I would, uh, experientially, I'm like, there's a deep correlation for me. As I study, I won't get into it now, but neuroscience and change, fundamentally, it's like resilience, hold, personal holding environments, healthy attachment rewires the brain, all these things. That's what's coming out right now. Also, just a kit, this isn't like the, the ministry longevity group. Like this is something greater than ministry and longevity. I think the aim is probably like wholeness in Jesus mm-hmm. and ministry and longevity is a part of that. So if you aim for a group for ministry and longevity, I think you miss the mark, but that's a byproduct to think of what's occurring in the fabric. And like we're, we didn't like master build this thing, right? We just kind of uncovered something, <laughs> but we like this and kind of have to share it. Mm-hmm. It's been a gift. So I hope that answers Thanks the question. Much. Yes. Does a relationship with Christ, uh, the, sort of the initial, drawing together or does that not matter? You're all pastors, mm-hmm. is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I think Maryland in this context, yeah, of course. I mean, so that that was a sort of pre-commitment. But if I was thinking about, okay, I live in a town, um, I would think that yes, there's a certain level of kind of like a wholehearted heart level friendship relationship you can have with someone who doesn't know the Lord. I don't see how it's, I think it's impossible that in some way your love for the Lord or your relationship with him is not going to become part of that conversation, you know, because if, if it wasn't, then I think you wouldn't be being wholehearted with that other, with that other friend. But certainly I think you could have really genuine, deep friendships and, you know, multi-year sharing with people that, that don't know Christ. Um, but in this case, for what we're talking about, yeah, that was a common bond was, was a spiritual kind of friendship where the same Holy Spirit's at work in each of us, making us more into the image of Christ. And one of the ways he's doing that is the refining that happens in a relationship of learning to become more myself through being with other people. And it just popped in my mind the, the reference to the Psalms. Of course, that yeah, right. The, yeah. So in, in our specific sort of recipe, our, our rule for us, is in some ways really connected to the fact that we're all pastors. Now, if we weren't, that might look a little different yeah. for sure. Yeah. But you could still have some some constraints around the way friends gather that actually create some really good things or create some freedom that that might not have each of these like six, for instance. I'm gonna be mindful of, of time. We're a little over, got a session. Uh, thanks for listening to Five Guys chat about friendship. We're happy to answer questions. Uh, all our emails are on the back as well, so feel free to, to reach out. And thanks, yep. thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.